This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 191. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with David Polanski. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Immersion Investments. David very recently launched his fund, Immersion Investments, in June 2021, so it was a pleasure to welcome him on the pod to better understand his investing philosophy and approach. We spend the majority of our time breaking down the ideal immersion setup, which are companies that fall into one or more of the categories listed in the title of this episode. I had a great time chatting with David, and I'm excited for him as he embarks on this new journey. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 191 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with David Polanski. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And I'd like to introduce our next guest here today. This is a gentleman who uh, we had a, we had a uh, pre-podcast chat, and that was the first time that we really spoke. And uh, I, I, he just launched this fund very recently. And I thought it'd be really fun for him to come on and tell us a little bit more about that and then all the things that we have in common and stuff. And uh, yeah, with that... David Polanski. He's the co-founder and managing partner at Immersion Investments. David, what's happening, man? How you doing? Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk. I'm just very happy that I inspired you to like uh, to 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 embrace your inner audio engineer and and got a new mic just for today. I mean, that was that's that's pretty neat. I did. I got a new microphone just for you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. And wait, we also were telling me just offline and I, I, I have to press record when we get into things that we find, you know, all this stuff, but like, yeah, of course you're, you're an audio engineer because you were all, you were in a band in high school, right? And you, and you I played was, drums? yes, I was a drummer in a metal band. I don't know if it was metal. It was more mix of uh, punk rock metal. I don't want to say the name because I don't know if I want my LPs to find me. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was something I did from actually middle school uh, all the way through high school. Yeah, we recorded an album, toured around, um, and I was also uh, doing audio engineering too. So. That's so awesome! Wait, so you had the double you had the double kick drum then, of course. Oh, absolutely! I actually have an electric drum set right behind my camera right here. I won't. I can't turn my computer around, but. Uh, it's uh yeah, it's got a double kick and everything. 
Oh, that's so fun. So, so you, I'm glad to hear that you're still playing. I, I unfortunately, I wish I could say this. I, I'm also a drummer and uh, I did jazz, I did jazz drums from fifth grade through eighth grade and then sports took over. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's life. I, uh, I didn't really play all through college up until actually last year, this drum set was a little COVID treat to myself. So it was, it was fun to get back into it. I, I, I want to get one of those electric ones. Cause like my, always my excuse has been is like, Oh, having a drum set, like where can you set up a drum set in a, an apartment or a condo or anything like that? And of course there's all these amazing electric drum sets out there. And I'm just, I'm just being, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I know there's not that like expensive one. I know there's obviously the really expensive ones, but there's some that aren't that bad. Uh, they're, they're awesome. They like the, and like, even like the mid range ones, they feel like the real thing. Like the technology has just gone so good. So definitely do it. Get back into it. Bite the bullet. So then I have to ask in the middle of playing in a punk metal band and, and being an audio engineer, you know, where did your passion for investing start? Sorry, that was my segue into getting into this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you saw, I don't know if you kind of, you caught that, but there, that, that was it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I figured that's where we were going with that. Um, my passion for investing, when did it start? Um, I, it's my passion is like, it's like constantly in development. Like I'm always learning, always trying out new things. I think I had, I had an early concept of business and investing just in my household because both of my parents were entrepreneurs and they ran their own business. So I would, um, I, I did something really, I used to do funny things. Like I would take my rock collection and my trading cards when I was really little, I would go out in the backyard and I would bury them in the yard and I would go back inside and I say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back and I'm going to go get those when they're more valuable. When I'm older, I'm going to dig them up and I'm going to sell them. So I, of course that didn't go over well. I had to go dig them back up and then I had to replant the dirt and the grass and all that. But it was a, uh, I think I just kind of always had a little bit of that muscle um, within myself. And then um, I actually go skipping ahead a little bit um, into college. I actually went to school for psychology. Originally, I quickly realized I didn't really have the personality for that. I was much more interested in business, um, learning about business, learning how people make money and sort of build things. Um, and in the meantime, I kind of had, I had this stock portfolio on the side that I had started in high school. Um, so I figured I could get into investing because that's kind of an interesting mix of psychology and business. Um, I was, you know, I was fortunate enough to go, I went to the London School of Economics for a year in, during undergrad. Um, and I learned there that you could actually get paid. You could have a real job picking stocks for other people. So I thought picking stocks for other people was insane. I thought that was something that you really only did as like a side job and that that was aside from your main gig. Um, so I started learning more about that and how to do it. I took some accounting co courses and um, I, I really liked them. All my peers hated accounting, but I was I thought it was really fascinating. So I start, started to sort of incorporate um, income statement analysis, balance sheet, cash flow into my investing process. Because in high school, like I think how a lot of people get started is it was really more like a Peter Lynch approach. Like I would see a product I like, like, oh, I like Domino's. Oh, I like XYZ product. And you buy that. Um, 
I started to abandon that a little bit and start actually getting into analyses of the business um, and those sorts of things. But um, I, I wasn't making a lot of money initially. And I realized it was because I, I was following a more so quantitative approach. I was looking at PE ratios, price to book ratios. I was looking at current earnings and current financial statements, which everybody has access to. Um, so I, I've developed my approach over the years to be more sort, more sort of a uh, investigative approach. So learning deeply about each and every business, trying to forecast that out, seeing how it can grow, um, and not really paying any attention or a little bit of attention, but not much attention to the current state of affairs, more so trying to think about where things could be way down the line. So I, I'm not sure if that answers your question. I guess, where did my passion start? Started in the home and I've just developed it ever since. So very cool. I mean, was there a certain strategy or philosophy that you kind of gravitated towards? I mean, you kind of answered that a little bit, but like in particular, was there any, did you read any books or was there a certain thinker? Or, uh, did you see yourself as the next Warren Buffett? I mean, come on, you know what? what, <laughs> what, what uh, I, on, I we all had those illusions of grandeur when we were in our, in our teens and twenties when we were thinking about, yeah. oh, I'm getting my start investing. I'm going to be the next Buffett. I, de I definitely had that inclination. I think um, after you get your first like good, I, I mean, and some of it were trades too. Like back then, like I would buy something, it would pop 50% um, and then I would sell it. And then of course it would go up another tenfold and I should have just held on to it. Um, I didn't actually grow up with uh, Ben Graham or Buffett or anything like that. I was mostly self-taught, frankly. Um, so I didn't really have that. I eventually got a hold of the intelligent investor and I started reading more of those classic style of books. Um, and honest, honestly, they, they kind of hurt me because I, I think when you're, when, when something becomes that popular, that it comes down to the layman on the street and everybody is aware of this strategy it's very hard to make money doing that because all of that information has been priced in because markets, markets develop over time, of course, right. and things get more and more efficient. So it was, uh, I, I, I did try to incorporate some of that and it didn't work. I mean, it just, it just, it just doesn't really work for me, for me, at least maybe it works for other people. Do you think that might've been timing or do you think it, it was, it was more just like, you know what, this, this doesn't jive with what, how I want to approach investing. Oh, well I would do no, like I would do like Ben Graham screens and those sorts of things. Oh, I, see. I, yeah. I would, I would uncover, you know, um, emerging market uh, steel companies trading at a third of book value. Um, and I would buy them, not realizing that the CEO is going to steal all my money and leave me holding the bag. So I, I never really um, considered that stuff early on. I didn't consider that and the importance of, you know, some of these other things like the business quality, um, growth prospects, um, management quality. Those were all things that came later, as I think they do with a lot of people. Right. So it's interesting. So it, it it's not it, it's not so much that it didn't work. Well, it didn't work for you, but that's only if you, you only stuck to just looking at the companies based on how it screens, right? And not yes. doing that follow-up qualitative and saying, like, oh, well, 
there's a reason why this steel company might be you yeah. know <laughs> where it's at. Right. And and when when I read those books initially, I was thinking, oh, well, this is how this guy did it, you know, 50 years ago, not thinking that over the course of 50 years, maybe things develop, maybe they right. evolve, they get priced in. So it was, I was uh, trying to learn from the early greats and it, a lot, it, it wasn't really working. So gotcha. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. All right. So, so real quick, catch us before we get into the, your strategy and everything, catch us up to today. You know, what, tell us a little bit about Immersion Investment Partners and, and uh, your, you know, how, how you got to that point. Sure. Yeah. So Immersion Investments is a company that I co-founded with my partner, Tim Delaney. Um, prior to launching the firm, we uh, worked together for five years at an investment manager in Boston. Um, he was the uh, head of investment strategy and I was the lead analyst, uh, basically in charge of um, public market equity due diligence and ongoing monitoring. Uh, we launched our fund um, on June 1st, um, Immersion Investment Partners, which is a small and micro cap uh, long only partnership. Uh, we specialize in companies less than $5 billion. Uh, we are hi- highly concentrated, I would say. Um, we, own, we own about 10 stocks right now and the top five make up roughly 80% of our AUM. Um, And I'm sure we'll get into some of the nitty gritty in a minute, but um, just sort sort of at a high level, we're looking for fundamentally good businesses run by good managers, uh, trading at very cheap multiples on out year earnings. Um, That's kind of a generic answer. There are a lot of managers that say that. Um, I think what's different about what we're doing is that there, with names that we buy, there has to be some level of misunderstanding, obviously. I mean, you need to be against the consensus. So there's some aspect of it that either the market doesn't like, there might be an aspect to it where there's a hidden asset um, buried within it, or there's uh, it's a business where good fundamental economics are masked by current spending, which means they might not earn a lot of money right now. So those are, that's kind of the high level of what we're trying to do. Well, I'll tell you, you picked a good segment of the market for that because uh, microcaps basically all assets are in retrospect kind of hidden. <laughs> so, 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 you know, and then, and then sub billion, you know, they're, they're still small enough where, you know, there could be some kind of asset in there where you're like, wait, they're not really monetizing or doing anything, or that could be a huge catalytic, catalytic event if this happens. And then now that becomes way more valuable than even management probably perceived. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. So tell me, so you, you kind of got it started getting into it a little bit in terms of uh, immersions, uh, guiding investment, pr- investing principles. So can you go through those real quick as well? So that uh, I want, I want more, I want more, I want to understand yeah. it even better. You want more. I, I'll give you, um, I guess one one aspect and one principle we live by is, uh, you know, we we want to make money, we we want our stocks to do well, we will we want our stocks to go up a lot, of course, um, but we also are looking at the downside. So upside isn't just the most important thing in and of itself. We want asymmetric setups where. If we're wrong, we're not going to lose our shirts. Um, but if we're right, we can make many multiples of our money. Um, we do. We think in terms of 
and end state economics when we look at these businesses. So we're not so much looking at the gap earnings or cash flow, but given given sort of the underlying business, the customer, the unit level economics, what will this business look like at maturity? Um, so in order to make sure that we're not going to lose our shirts, we have to ask ourselves, you know, given sort of these steady state operating results, you know, maybe three, four, five years out, how certain are we that that's going to occur? So certainty has to play into it. How sure are we that's going to happen as and if it doesn't happen, what is what is that going to mean for us? So it's it's not just, you know, can we make a lot of money on this? There, there are a lot of stocks where, you know, you look at them, they're growing really fast, um, but maybe everybody understands it. Maybe um, if you're wrong, you're going to lose 50, 60, 80 percent of your investment. So we're we're trying to look for these asymmetric setups where if we're wrong, it's OK. But if we're right, we'll make a lot. The, the other factor I did want to touch on is um, we, we don't want to anchor either. I think um, as much as managers will say that they're, um, you know, fundamental base, a lot of them will look at the stock chart and they'll say, okay, this is a good chart. This is a bad chart. Um, this has gone up a lot. I might, might've missed it, um, which generally over long periods of time tends to be true. I mean, the, chart should match the fundamentals over time. Um, but it, it kind of ignores um, catalysts, like changes. So if, if you don't really, if you're just looking at that and saying, eh, I can't really buy this thing, um, we, we don't try to do that. We try to like really take a good hard look at what's going on, what kind of business is it? Um, and if it's if it's a bad business, is there anything that's going to change that? Are they working on another product? Um, are they going to offer another service that has this whole other growth avenue? Or are they, is there going to be a new management team, new board, something like that? So those are a couple more of our, uh, get, of our principles. Yeah. Very cool. So I want to now get into, there was this one section in your Q2 2021 partner letter where you describe the ideal emergence setup. And you have some pretty, I love how you describe each of these types of companies. So, you know, for, for our audience that, hasn't read that letter yet. Um, you know, what are, how, how do you, how do you categorize some of the companies that you look for? And then maybe a brief description of each and then, you know, maybe why you broke it down the way you did. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So for, for those who don't know the, um, the ideal immersion setup is like the type of investment that we like to look for. And really the, the impetus to come up with this list or this not really a checklist, more of these archetypes for what makes a good investment. Um, we were thinking of what is a sustainable source of competitive edge. Um, we know that anything that can be easily quantified and dumped into a model or a screening tool um, probably isn't a source of edge because those things can be quickly distilled by people with much better processing and analytical or computing power than we have. Um, so all five of our setups are really types of investments that can't be quantitatively screened. 
there, there are things that require you to either look somewhere else, like looking off the beaten path. So that might be um, kind of a strange exchange or a strange index, or maybe a name that's not in your index, or it requires a lot of fundamental work. Because if you just look at the business on the surface, you might say, oh, you know, that looks bad. But if you do a little bit of digging, you can say, okay, if this business continues growing at this pace, it'll actually be a pretty good business in five years or things are getting better. Um, so th those five setups, the ideal merchant setups are the underdog, the babushka doll, the, the social pariah, the ugly duckling, and the doubted champion. So, and, and any different all of our investments can have one or more of the following trait. It doesn't need to neatly fit into one of these buckets. Actually, a really good investment would be one that fits into almost all of them, that we would consider that the, uh, I don't know, it's not a trifecta because trifecta is three, whatever whatever that would be for five, five of the factors. The gold, well, I know four was the golden sombrero. That, wait, that's four strikeouts in baseball, so maybe not, but okay. All right. We'll figure it out before the end of the spot. We'll get right. it in. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so um, the underdog, that, that one's pretty simple. Uh, it, that's something that's too small to catch people's attention. Um, it trades on a bizarre exchange. It doesn't have any liquidity. Um, the underdog is a fundamentally good business, and it might screen that way if you were to screen it. But there are transitory factors to people buying it or funds to buy it. Um, obviously, if it's on an exchange, it doesn't have any liquidity and it's very small. Um, that'll prevent people from purchasing it and prevent it from becoming discovered. Um, lack of analyst coverage is another factor here. Um, I, I just I remember in my early investing experiences discovering some you know, smaller names and bringing them to friends and colleagues that worked at larger funds. And they would say, um, I would pitch them the name and they would say, okay, that's great. I can't buy it in a million years. And I'd be like, okay, why? They'd be like, well, it has to be over a billion dollars. I'd say that's, that's crazy. Like you, you should at least buy a little bit. I know if you're running, you know, $50 billion, it's very hard, but you should, you should at least try. You should at least try, but they would say, nope, can't, can't even look at it. Just going to be tossed right in the trash. So that's, that's the first one. Um, the second one is the babushka doll. So that is a uh, hidden asset or assets um, within a larger company um, that has significant potential value. And that if you're partnered with a management team, that's willing to unlock that either through a sale or a spinoff. Um, that can be really valuable. Now, um, a good babushka doll setup will be one where on the surface, you know, maybe the company hasn't grown revenue in 10 years, um, profitability hasn't done anything. But if you take the time to look at the different segments or the different areas of the business, you can say, okay, there's actually something in here that's growing really fast. It's small, it's small compared to the overall whole. But if it keeps growing at this rate, then someday it could be worth, you know, X, Y, Z multiple of the current stock price. Um, a good recent example of this, and this is not a stock that we own, 
um, neither of these stocks, but um, was Ferrari when it was spun out of Fiat Chrysler. I think that was a pretty good recent example of a good Babushka doll style investment. Um, the third one is the social pariah. Uh, this is um, a name where when you say it to a friend that works at a fund, they immediately scoff at you um, and they tell you that that's a horrible idea and you're going to lose all your money. Um, which is usually for a good reason. I mean, there are a lot of very smart people in this industry, obviously. But if you, if you take that attitude and that approach towards investing, you will miss catalysts. You won't be able to identify changes that could maybe result in significant future value creation. Um, you know, such things as, like I was saying before, like a new product, a new service, um, a management change or some some opportunity for the narrative on the stock to shift from where it is currently. Um, the fourth one is the ugly duckling. Um, as the name kind of implies, this is a business, it's a unit economic story. So it's either a retailer or maybe a SaaS company where each sale you make or each, each sale you make to a customer or each new location or retail store you open has really good economics in and of itself. Um, but on the surface, it kind of looks like junk because they're either burning a lot of cash, they might require capital, um, so they might dilute, um, they might have to raise debt or equity financing. But under the surface, kind of what's going on there is that it's a really good investment. And so if you can build a case where they can scale and ultimately that profitability will come through, um, we think that's really, really powerful. Um, so that's the ugly duckling. Um, the last one is the doubted champion or colloquially uh, within our company, we call it the Tom Brady effect, where the most common counter argument to owning a doubted champion is that their returns or growth cannot possibly sustain going forward. So in other words, it's, it's a company that for some inexplicable reason, well, inexplicable to the layman, um, has, they just can't foresee them growing past where they've already been. Um, but a, a good doubted champion, one that works, is one that continues to grow at a really fast rate. Um, this is, I mean, that's usually due to some qualitative factor within the company, um, such as you know, differentiated product service, um, a good culture, a superior culture. Um, that can also create a doubted champion. Um, but ultimately, it's kind of where the heuristics fall apart. Um, people quote base rates a lot and they'll say, okay, so, you know, only 5% of companies can grow sales. I'm, and I'm making this up. I don't know if this is actually the case, but they'll say something to the effect of only 5% of companies have ever grown sales more than 15% for 10 years or more. So instead of determining if this thing that you're looking at can do that, they just say, yeah, I can't. It can't happen. And I, I mean, we all have, you know, rules of thumb. We all have heuristics that um, kind of make sense to us and help save us time. Because frankly, you know, doing the work on all these types of setups and trying to figure this all out takes a lot of time um, that most fund managers probably don't have. Um, but we, we think that it's really important to do the work and try to understand.
um, what's happening. So these these are the uh, these are the five ideal immersion setups. Very cool. I love all five, and I think it's so you you creatively organize in such a fun way that I think it's a it's a really simple way in some ways to 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 be able to kind of when you see a stock, you're like, oh, that's a data champion. Oh, but my to to go to to follow up on all five. You know, do you have an example or an anecdote of one that would that because I think you said at the outset that the ideal of the ideal is that you have a stock that fits one or, or sorry, that fits most of the categories, right? So, I mean, have you had an experience where you're just like, wow, this it hit every category, like this is it. And then maybe what happened from there? Um, so we've only been, we've only been running since June 1st. Remember that. So right, we- of course. We don't have a long, long history. I, I'll say. Yeah, but you've had this in your head, you know. Right, okay, yeah. so you were so okay. Sorry, you wrote this in Q for your Q two letter. Yeah. But you, I, this, you didn't just come up with this, okay? On, on, on uh, what? On May thirty first, we 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 named them. They were always in. <laughs> there, it was always in our brains, like just okay, right. kind of. Um, I don't know, just swashing around, I guess, like kind of as a general framework. Um, so what we did was we actually said, all right, this is, this is what they're called. Um, but, uh, a good recent one, and and this was intended to be a, a day one investment for us was a company called at home group. Uh, the ticker was H O M E they're now taken out. So they're private now. Um, but that was a true ugly duckling um, because of each new at-home retail store generated really phenomenal unit economics. But on the surface, the financials didn't look too good. They had a lot of overhead costs. They were burning cash, spending a lot on CapEx. Um, but they were also hated. Uh, the history of the stock wasn't very good. I mean, it was another one where if you kind of look at the, the price of the chart, since they, I think they came public in 2015, 2016, and it was not a good journey as a public company. So that one kind of falls into like the social pariah and the ugly duckling uh, bucket, if you will. Yeah. Got it. I, what, do you have any other stories where, you know, especially since starting the fund in June, you know, when you're looking at the different buckets, a, a funny combination of, uh, <laughs> of, of some of these buckets or one that you thought was one, but it ended up being part of another, another bucket? Uh, I think there is one that we currently own. It's a company called IDT Corporation and it fits into um, the underdog. It has no sell side coverage. Um, it's extremely illiquid. Um, there's really no, no good market for the stock. The intraday volatility is insane. Um, so that's an underdog. It's a babushka doll in the fact that IDT has three assets inside of it, um, growing 30% plus, and we think it can continue to do so for at least the next five years. Um, and at maturity, or when, I, as I was saying, like kind of in the out years, we think that those assets are worth substantially more um, than the business as a whole today. Um, and it's somewhat of an ugly duckling because they have a software product. They have two software products inside of it, actually, that are currently burning cash. And so if you 
look at the financials, you might say, okay, well, this company's losing money. It's not that great. Maybe it's not a really good industry. But when we dive in more into the subsidy, so we're going into the company level, and then we're going into the subsidiary of the company. Um, we found that the unit economics of each new customer that their software assets were signing on um, were really, really good, really good. So that's that's three. I mean, three. I'd argue, I'd argue it also maybe, and I'm not a shareholder, but I'd also would argue it might be a data champion. I mean, growing, you know, three three assets in the business that are growing at thirty percent year over year. I mean, you know, I'm sure there's quite a few people that are saying like, no way, that's not sustainable. Yeah, the and I think it, what would you could you could call it a doubted champion because the the family that runs it, um, you know Howard Jonas and his son who is now the CEO of the holding company, um, they have I think since they IPO'd the business in '96, um, IDT and all of the spinoffs that they've done, they've cumulatively generated about a 13% annualized return versus the Russell, which is at about seven or eight. Um, so they've done substantially better than their index. But for some reason today, this stock is extraordinarily cheap. Um, and there are a few reasons behind that that we don't have to go into. So yes, that's <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and by the way, and this is me talking directly to the audience for a second. I did an incredible episode with uh, Joe Boscovich where he literally like breaks down IDT. Well, he talks about... Howard Jonas and the genius of Howard Jonas, and then breaks down IDT and all the different spinoffs. So I highly recommend everybody go and check that out. I have a feeling David probably listened to that too. Uh, <laughs> I, did. I did. I did listen to it. And it was a really good episode. So everybody should go check it out. But if if you want to know what the future spinoffs are, the future, you know, really high quality companies, go look at IDT itself. Go give it. I, I'll, I'll spare you the pitch and we can we can keep going. Fair enough, man. Well, give me, all right. So I asked you like on the positive side, on the downside, what was one, you know, based on the buckets, you're like, all right, this, you know, this has, this fit one of the buckets, you know, this looks good. You know, why not, you know, love to hear an anecdote there where you, you learned a couple lessons. Um, where it didn't fit into a bucket and where we learned a lesson. Um, or you tried to fit it into a bucket, like, oh yeah, no, this is, this is an ugly duckling. Oh, this is a babushka, but it may not have actually been, you just, you know, you wanted it to be. I don't know if that's the, I think the the five factors are almost an output to the process rather than an input. Got it. So I, there, it's almost just like, um, that's what we like naturally gravitate towards. And then like, we don't, we, most of our names will, will fall into these buckets, but we won't be like, you know, we need X amount of this, we need X amount of this or X amount of this. It's not, we're not trying to, um, to limit ourselves in that respect. Cause I guess, um, actually the one, the one thing that made me nervous about putting out this list is, you know, maybe in the future, if we're talking to investors and we change our minds, I mean, we want, we want to have the ability to grow and to change our minds. And people might say, okay, well, you know, if five or 10 years down the road, they say, okay, well, what is this one? And we say, well, actually that one is maybe outside of the scope. And then they might say, well, are you fickle? Are you not sticking to your philosophy? Um, but I, I want to have, I want to have the ability to grow, I guess would, would be how I, how I put it. 
Fair enough, man. I, I like it. So, you know, you talk about portfolio construction a little bit, you know, you say you're ultra concentrated, uh, 10 holdings, the top five make up 80%. You know, what was your thought process there? And um, I mean, once you find, I mean, how often do you find a new idea? God, not often. <laughs> <laughs> um, not, not often um, because it, it has to, it, it kind of it has to be a good business. A lot of good businesses are appropriately priced or or overpriced, right? Um, so we we don't we don't find them that often. Um, I, I I don't even want to put a time limit on it. I would say why do so did your other the other part of your question, which is why so concentrated? Um, because there aren't that many great setups. It's just, it's just the reality of the beast. And if we find a name, I, I guess with, with Tim and me in our, in our past life, it really stunk when we were super, super right about something and it was only 3% of the portfolio. And we tended to be, not to be arrogant, but we tended to be right more than we were wrong. So we said, hey, if we see something that is clearly so asymmetric, and is really interesting because nobody else is looking at this. Um, we wouldn't want that to be a small percentage of the portfolio. So we, so that's that's why we're concentrated. Yeah, very good. So I mean, knowing that you're so concentrated, I mean, how do you then size into some of your positions? Um, I'm, I'm assuming that takes a while. I am almost I almost feel like I'm contradicting myself a little bit because we will do. Um, we will do like little starter. Well, they're not, they're, they're little to us. We will, we, we will start with a three to 5% um, position and then scale up from there. But um, again, the, these things are in motion. So on June one, when we launched, we had a portfolio, like we knew, we knew what we were doing and we bought it and it's only been three months. So it really hasn't changed since, since we started. Um, so if I gave you a complete answer right now, it right. might might be different in the future. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point to bring up. Like you literally just started the fund. So you had to deploy the capital and make, you know, you had the ideas in mind that you're going to do. So it's just a matter yeah. of putting the money to work right away. All right. So so then my, my next question this is my favorite question I ask everybody on here. What, what would you say is an investing experience that impacted your career the most? Um, I, I'm tempted to give you my like gut reaction is to give you like a good or a bad experience, um, or both, but I, I could, I could do both, but, um, I, I, I think I've been becoming more cognizant lately of false lessons or developing rules of thumb that won't really apply in 10 years because a lot of I guess it wasn't an investing, a single experience, but a lot of experiences of pitching to somebody who was older than myself and them using a frame of reference that was 30 years old and not really updating it for how the current world is or how businesses operate. Um, and they're missing out on something that could have made them a lot of money. Um, 
And I think, I think that happens with a lot of really famous popular investors too, is like they made their money um, in one, you know, in one area and one bucket or doing one thing super, super well. Um, and then they kind of don't update their views or they don't, they kind of hang on to those rules of thumb for too long. So I'm, I, it's not a single experience that changed my career, but it's, it's a series of experiences and like constant reminders that like, I need to, I need to, it's weird. Cause like investing is so strange. Cause you need to be really, you need to be steadfast in your views and have conviction, but you also have to have the ability to change your mind when the facts are different. So it's, it can be tough, but I keep reminding myself that, you know, I think we found something that will make us good money over time. I think we're going to do really well. Um, but also we need to be open to different things that things might change. Got it. All right. So I'll ask this question then a little differently. When you first got your start, Back in high school, when you bought those first couple stocks, you know, what was there? Was there any experience during that time when you're first learning that would you say kind of impacted you in, in some respect down the road? Uh, don't buy mining companies. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, see, that's again, as, that's, as that's, I just did like 100 interviews with junior mining companies that are on my YouTube channel. Oh, right now. that's that's okay. great. I love it. I just, no, I just ended up on their their no no list. Um, <laughs> but but again, that's that's a that's a heuristic and that's a rule of thumb that maybe maybe I need to update. Um, I would say, uh, this this wasn't early, this was recently within the last three or four years. Um, I and it hammered home the point of good people and people at the top. Um, engendering a really good culture within their company. Um, we owned a firm and I, you know, we like to do some pretty good due diligence. So I like to reach out to employees at companies, current employees, not just past ones. Um, and I, I was reaching out to employees. Um, and then a couple months later, I was at the annual meeting. I'm not going to give the name of this firm, um, but I was at their annual meeting a couple months later and the CEO actually pulled me aside in the midst of all the businesses, all the business and everything going, going on and all the business in the annual meeting. And he said, don't reach out to my employees. He said, I am the only one that talks to investors. You can't do that. And I, I, I was shocked. I had never, I, <laughs> that, that one interaction said so many things about this firm that um, I think are really, really hard to put into a spreadsheet or to put into a model. So um, that was a lesson in the importance of management and having good management and management that isn't maybe trying to hide hide something or is afraid of me talking to your employees. That's, that was a very strange time. It's that's that's a that's a really great anecdote actually because uh, on you know when we're talking about microcaps you know a lot of investors that come on here say that you know as part of our due diligence process we like to talk to not just employees but customers or potential customers even uh, some of your their competition just to get a better understanding so that's really interesting to, I've never heard that that a CEO actually coming up to you and saying that that that's uh, a I'm surprised it doesn't happen more. Honestly, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, yeah, it, it was a weird experience. Needless to say, we don't own that stock. 
Yeah, as to say the least. Yeah, some of the implications from that. It's. I mean, I wonder. I mean, at the same time, you can kind of be like, all right, let me let me put my hat on. Let me let me understand his perspective a little bit, right? Of like, or or their their perspective. Excuse me. Um, is okay. You might not want your your employees might not give the most accurate picture of what's actually happening in the company, both on the negative or even positive side. Right. So I wonder if that is like an immediate, like, all right, well, that's weird. Uh, They're obviously hiding something or do you have to stop yourself and think, think, all right, well, maybe he's trying to protect his employees from saying things that also might not be public. Right. And, and making sure that they're protected in some, in some respects, but it sounds like this person was, was a little aggressive. So the the fault my follow up was okay then can you make them available to me and we can have someone else in the room if it makes you uncomfortable and he said no so okay there you go there you go <laughs> that sounds like an aggressive no <laughs> that, was, uh, that was that was uh yeah that sent a chill right up my spine Oof. yeah that's wow yeah no no there you go um so so as we're kind of rounding the bend here for for our chat today and again thanks so much for taking the time like this this is a lot of fun and you're we'll definitely have you back at some point but what what would you david what would you say do you have any advice for for new investors that are looking at small micro nano caps at, at this time right now um i don't i don't know if it, it applies to investing in general i guess um so my advice would be take an accounting course under and you're you when you say new people i'm assuming you mean students anybody you know it could be students everybody we're all students right you want to go we 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 could go down that road you want to go full philosophy don't worry i got i got a couple books here that we can talk about we can talk we can talk about how we're all still students but you you have a good setup i'm uh we we just moved into our condo and i uh it's it's a little it's a little bareback here but I used to have a shelf right here and it was starting to kind of like leaning tower of Pisa kind of thing. I thought it'd be kind of a funny gag to like say, Oh, the countdown to when the shelf finally like falls over and like all the books fall on my head. Yeah. Like the next California earthquake that we have that just, you know, does that. But my wife vetoed that, that gag mm. pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, we try and have fun in investing as much as we can. We do. We do try to have fun. We do try to have fun. I, I think I think you should do it anyway. You should bring it back. Yeah. But I have this photo of me shredding. Like, how could I? How could I? How could I get rid of that now? Is that I, what that is? I can't. I can't. Oh, I, I got to full size my screen. Oh yeah, look at I was, that. I was, in, I was in a barrel. It was it was pretty cool. That's awesome. That's yeah. Really cool. it, but anyways, okay. We were talking about we were, advice. We were, advice. Uh, learn how to understand um, financial statements. Um, and don't don't take that literally. I mean, ju- just because you know how to model out a company and pr- create projections, um, don't don't just be like, okay, well, this is the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow. Um, go go deeper than that. So um, figure out like if they're doing a new line of business or they have a certain growth initiative. Like, okay, what are the what does the math look like around that? particular thing like that's where the rubber meets the road because it gets difficult because obviously companies don't like to talk about that stuff um some of them do some of them don't um but really really dive in deep to try and understand the companies and the drivers and then the drivers of the the pnl or the income statement um because really that's just an output of every initiative and project going on within the company um 
the second thing I would say, oh man, I'm going to get, uh, people aren't going to like this. Um, don't, <laughs> don't blindly follow the advice of investing legends, some living, some dead. Um, it worked for them, but that doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Um, things will get priced in, things will become inefficient and you have to update your views and figure out how to, how to make money. Um, and, and why would people give you shit for that one? That's great advice. I like um, that. I, well, I, after I said it, like I was originally going to drop <laughs> names, but then I, at mid sentence, I decided not to. I mean, you're totally right. Like, look, you, everybody, like, it's great wisdom. It's great education, you know, and then it's up to you as to how you want to implement it. You could go, you know, word for word or personalize it. Yes. This is something that works well for you. I mean, Absolutely. I think, you know, or create something new as a result of the old knowledge. And then we can get into the, the debate. Is that something new? Because you derived it from somewhere else. And then we could go down that road as well. Go full on, full on modernistic take on what actually is new or not. Yeah. I don't know where we were going with that. I don't know where I was, going, but I think, I think you got it. I think we got that. I, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the other point I, I would say is uh, learn how to communicate an investment or to pitch, pitch yourself and your ideas. I'm, I'm not good at it, good um, but it's so important and something I continuously trying to learn. Um, I mean, it's not just about getting an idea in a portfolio, but like raising money, building a business, like, communicating is everything because there are so many ideas and there are so many managers out there. Um, so you really need to learn how to pitch an investment, pitch yourself, pitch your business. Um, and then lastly, get on FinTwit and talk about your ideas. Um, that Doing that changed my life um, in a lot of ways. So I highly recommend getting on Twitter. Talk. It's really, it's uh, my, my, uh, uh, my partner, Tim, said something. It's like uh, swimming naked a little bit. You feel pretty exposed when you put your ideas out there. And I do, too. Um, but it creates a lot of great conversation. And and also, if people don't agree with you, they'll reach out and they'll be like, hey, have you looked at this? And it, it kind of, you know, builds a network and helps helps you even more deeply understand what you want. I could not agree with every bit of that advice that you said. That's, that's all fantastic advice. I mean, especially going out there and networking and, and pitching your ideas and just so you can get some good quality feedback. In fact, I hope you do Andrew Walker's show at some point uh, so that I, I love his format. I, I, we have different formats. I, I love how he, you know anybody can go on there and pitch a stock and he gives some good quality feedback on that. So I, I think that'd be a good, uh, hopefully you're on that one day. Um, I, yeah, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. That'd, that'd be cool. But anyways, with that, David, dude, where can our audience go and find more information uh, to follow along the uh, immersion investments and then also to follow you on uh, social media? Yeah, absolutely. So the social media, my Twitter handle is just David H. Polanski, P-O-L-A-N-S-K-Y. Um, my partner, Tim Delaney, he has a great handle. It's boring PM guy. So that's boring PM as in PM then guy. Love it. It's a great name. I um, mean, then my email is david at immersioninvest.com. That's I-M-M-E-R-S-I-O-N-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Awesome. David, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.